It took me many more years of putting stuff on my damn vision board before I realized I don't need stuff. Stuff is not, it doesn't fill my soul. It doesn't make my soul sing. I want experiences. I want a dream. Welcome to Idea Generation, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan Bever, and each week I get to speak with some of the most innovative ideators in culture and try to figure out how they make their creative decisions. Now, full confession, my selfish motivation in making Idea Generation is that it offers me the opportunity to pick the brains of the most dynamic creatives in culture and one at a time add the jewels that they drop into my personal infinity gauntlet. Add to that, I also really enjoy the challenge and revelation that happens during the course of these conversations. And today's episode, featuring none other than multi-hyphenate superstar Gabrielle Union, is no different. Actually, that's a big fat lie. Today's episode was totally different because by virtue of my wife Deirdre having been friends with Gab since well before D&I ever started dating, for the last decade I've enjoyed the opportunity of watching Gab explode her brand and scale her business to exponential results from an extremely close proximity, which, perhaps counterintuitively, makes the task of organizing all the threads that I want to pull at and learn from completely overwhelming and agita-inducing. Stakes is high! It's one thing to wander down a path with an interesting stranger. It's another to attempt to chart a highly efficient course in real time with someone whose canny and guile you respect to the point that you might be a little bit intimidated by them. However, I'd like to think that the needle was threaded, and in my opinion, this episode is a masterclass in the power of self-exploration and self-mastery. Gab's path from being a catalog model seeking validation to an empowered actor, executive producer, entrepreneur, activist, and advocate has not been easy or come without cost, but her perspective and her candor on the process are overwhelmingly valuable. Stories of stupendous success are usually interesting on their own, but it's how Gab has managed to flourish that's so remarkable. On the acting tip, she starred in box office smashes like Bad Boys 2 and Think Like a Man, and then turned around and delivered riveting character performances in indie dramas like Something the Lord Made and The Inspection. And she's also one of the unmistakable faces behind Bring It On, a cult hit that's remained a fixture of pop culture 20 plus years after its initial release. And on the personal brand front, she's created and supported businesses that focused on black excellence and the black experience, and alongside her husband, Dwayne Wade, becomes something of the platonic ideal of a modern couple for advertisers. And she's done it all while centering a fierce commitment to a moral North Star that's guided both her career and her personal politics. Oh, and she also happens to be the only person I've met who sipped Heineken's with DMX while watching The Golden Girls. Before delving into her 30-year career, though, I wanted to start from the beginning and understand how Gab's childhood impacted the multifaceted person she's become. My sincerest thanks to Gab for A, introducing me to vision boarding, and B, for the candor and wisdom in this conversation. I'm struck by two things from our talk. One, Gab exudes positivity, but without sentimentality. At this stage in her career, where a lot of people would find it easy to rest on their laurels, she's still got the edge and drive of someone with something to prove. And two, while she's living her best life now, she hasn't gotten to this moment without a number of scars, bumps, and bruises along the way, most of which were not of her own doing. So as a result, her triumph is entirely her own, and it was hard to earn. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. 
Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. Tres Generaciones is the tequila for dreamers and doers who persevere against all odds. It's made from 100% blue agave, distilled with water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, and triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness. The brand's been around since 1873, and their demonstrated track record of success is the reason why Tres is eager to champion creatives with perseverance everywhere. So whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage, let Tres be your running partner on this journey. How did your parents' professional lives inform your career aspirations? Mm. Um, they didn't really. My, both of my parents were in telecommunications. My mom went at, at Pacific Bell, my dad at AT&T, and none of that looked sexy. Uh, so I just knew that they worked their asses off. And so I developed my work ethic from them. It never occurred to me that I shouldn't be working at all times. If there's overtime, you better get it. Like, I, it, that's just how we were raised. Um, but in terms of like the direction, um, no, that's just good old fashioned low self-esteem and wanting to be chosen. And it started with um, those model searches that they would have at the mall. And every time I would go and never get chosen. And the reality is people get chosen. Everyone gets fucking chosen because they, it's like a, you know, a bait and switch. You got chosen and now for the low, low price of $2,500, you can be a Barbizon model. Um, but I still wasn't chosen. And then finally, I, um, I was trying on prom dresses at Trudy's Dress Shop in Campbell, near San Jose. And I was discovered. And they're like, would you like to be in our prom commercial? And I was like, it's set. And uh, yeah, and I shot the Trudy's Dress prom commercial uh, my junior year of high school. And I was like, so basically I'm Meryl Streep. And it didn't exactly go that way, but what I loved was how I felt when I was chosen. And it went from that to, I got an internship at a modeling agency during um, college, uh, for college credits. And when that internship ended, they were like, would you ever consider modeling? And I was like, what? What? And I felt the call again. I was like, you think somebody might pick me? Um, and, I, and so I, I went for it. And my parents were like, what was UCLA about? Like, why did we, why did we take out a second mortgage on the home if you just want to be in a Tupac video? And uh, they were like, listen, do whatever you want, but don't ask us for any money. And that first year I made more than my parents. And they were like, okay, okay. Um, I see this is working out. Um, so yeah, no, I, it was really just a matter of liking the feeling of being chosen. And I thought that was Hollywood. <laughs> How foolish. What did you go to UCLA for? What was your, you know, before this plan A was offered to you, what was the, the original plan A? Initially, I started at University of Nebraska and I wanted to go into television broadcasting. And at the, uh, around the end of my freshman year, this journalist, this um, television journalist that I had become a fan of was murdered. And that just felt like, oh God, that's what that leads to. 
And so I was pivoting. I was going to follow my older sister's footsteps, uh, who was studying law at the time. And so I was like, let me figure out how to get a nice, cushy, easy um, major so I can have high, a high GPA, because I don't take standardized tests very well. Um, so I was already planning for mediocrity, basically. Um, and so I, I was a, when I transferred to UCLA, I was a, an English major. And at UCLA, they call it the 10 series and they call it the weeder series for a reason, because you will get weeded the fuck out. Um, and uh, I got my first B minus. I've never gotten anything lower than a B plus in my life. Um, and I was like, I don't think this is for me. So it did what it was supposed to do. It weeded me out. I chose what I thought was an even easier major, sociology, just studying people. I like people. How hard could this be? Um, so yes, I, could, I graduated with a degree in sociology and was um, studying for the LSATs, doing poorly um, when I got that internship. So I was like, okay, well, let me just see how this goes. Worst case, I go back. But yeah, the plan was to be a, a very average lawyer, I guess. So given that and you know your parents' sort of career trajectory, where was the inspiration and also the confidence to step out on this ledge and pursue a public-facing career in the arts coming from? Low self-esteem and somebody saying, you're so pretty. And I, that's one job. So now you're hooked. It's like heroin. I, I'm chasing the dragon. And if you think I could do it, I, I, then I should do it because you said I was pretty, you, you said I, I, I could do this and, and people might like me and, and people might think I'm like a star and, and attractive and, and then guys will come. I'm doing this, I'm absolutely going to be a model. I don't know, I, I, I had no idea that being a model in LA is very different than being a model in New York or Paris or Milan. Um, I'm literally doing like, I think, uh, my first gigs were teen, sassy, and all about you. And it was all under the same ownership. And they would hire one black model every three months. And I just would rotate throughout those three magazines. And it was like, I broke up with my boyfriend, now what? And it'd be a picture of me like. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm Naomi Campbell. Um, <clears throat> and I would make $120 a day. And I was like, I'm rich. I was working at the bookstore. Still didn't give up my bookstore job because that's where the real money was. $6.16 an hour after three raises as a supervisor. And I was like, you said 120 to smile? I, I, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna see where this goes. Um, and the money was good and it felt great being chosen. And I was like, I'm gonna see where this goes because what if more people choose me? Then I'm really, then, then I, 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 it like made me feel like I was worthy of existence, which is so weird to hear myself say it, but it's true. And that's really the whole, that was the push, that was the, the inspiration, just being chosen. Where did the ambition to take that next step from that into acting the same week that because uh, I didn't have a book I didn't have anything I didn't have a resume they um, they just took pictures in the agency and sent me off uh, to my first go see with just that and I came back with a job for three months um, and they were like okay that was fast uh, let's make up a fake resume and 
I mean, you can read. Let's just send you in for an audition and see what happens. Let's just see what the feedback is. And my first audition was Saved by the Bell, the new class. And uh, the role was Mistletoe Girl number two. And I've always had a photographic memory. And um, I had taken an oral interpretation of literature class. Those two things worked in my favor. I was an adult who could play a child who looked like a 15-year-old. And I just booked, I, I booked my first audition. I was like, this is easy. And so with every job that I booked, I took a fake thing off. Um, but they also weren't that challenging. You know, nobody cared. Uh, and there were a lot of teen shows at that time on the on UPN, CW, uh, Warner Brothers. No, it was Warner Brothers, UPN, Fox. And there were just a lot of opportunities to learn. And I just kept booking things. And the... Uh, I was like, well, maybe should I take an acting class? They're like, nah, it's fine. Whatever you're doing is working. And I just kept going. So you say, yeah, at what point did you step back and think like, okay, I'm, I am succeeding in this, and, but this is an art in and of itself. And there are, you know, people do take this incredibly seriously. And when, when did you sort of start applying that lens to your own performance and work. I booked this gig on ER, and I was playing an athlete. I'm familiar with the show, uh, ER. Yeah. Uh, this little show, ER. Uh, so I, I got this role, and I was an athlete that, was, that had too much on her shoulders, and her parents uh, were sort of living through her, and she fakes an injury to get out of playing sports. And there was a, the way it was written is that she gets like kind of misty, and so I played it Misty. It didn't say cry. And then Anthony Edwards was directing the episode. And uh, he, you know, he's like, yeah, we, we got that. Now this time, I know you're holding back. I just let it go. Just let it go. And then they do that like actor, director thing and holds eye contact as he backs away, kind of encouraging me gently to just let, the, let, it, let it through you. Let what through me? And I'm like, I have nothing. So I'm scrambling because I have no technique. I, I'm just memorizing words and adding a little personality. I'm not acting. I don't, I don't even know what that really is, right? But at this point, the rubber has hit the road. And this huge show with this huge actor, it, they're gonna figure it out. And I'm panicking. And take after take, I'm thinking of like my grandma's funeral, I'm thinking of dead puppies, like I'm thinking of anything like that should make me cry. Nothing. And then finally I hear him yell, bring in the menthol. And I knew enough at that point that that's like, this fucking loser can't, like she's a hack. And so they came in and they blew the menthol in my eyes and that's how they got me to cry. And I was like, I don't ever want, I don't wanna be this person and I got an acting coach. Um, and I learned what the hell I was doing. And it, it made me want to do more than what I had been, even though I was considered like, like I was killing it. I'm booking this, this, and this, but I'm like, I don't think I'm very good though. Or, or, or I know I could be a lot better. Mm. And I want to be better. I don't, I don't want to, and especially as a black woman, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything half-ass. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that a lot in the book. An overwhelming desire from your most 
you know, earliest memories in school of wanting to exceed expectations on everything. So what was the process of, I mean, I, as, as someone who knows nothing about acting, except that I imagine it is a very emotionally fraught and, you know, challenging intellectual problem to solve, to get into character. Like, how did you approach learning that process and, you know, upping your game? With complete humility. And luckily that has not been a challenge. In acting, I'm sure my husband might say <laughs> different, but with with acting, I just had to be like, I don't, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. You have to start at day one, page one. Nothing is too small for me to absorb or learn or understand. Talk to me like I'm a child, <laughs> and you need them to get through a whole movie. And uh, and so she, I've been working with uh, Lee Kilton Smith for, gosh. 20 plus years. She's like, she's, she's abroad and she's my kind of girl. And so she, she hits me right between the eyes and she, she just tells me like it is. And she's like, okay, you've been skating by, but now I want you to thrive on your own. You thought you were, you know, riding a crotch rocket when you've been on a tricycle with, you know, both your parents holding on to you. It's time for you to, to know what the fuck you're doing. And so we started with page one character, character breakdown. What does your character want? What does your character need? What are the risks? And filling pages and pages and pages of notebooks and just creating a character and then staying true to what I've created and making decisions that service the character, not ego, not my fear. Um, everything has to be in service of the character and the truth whatever that truth is. And that was interesting because it, it opened me up in, a, in an emotional way that I have never been ready for, that I still struggle with, to be emotionally vulnerable and it be emotionally vulnerable in public and it not feel like humiliation. I'm still working on that. Um, but it's okay that my characters can break down. It doesn't mean I am breaking down. But I couldn't figure out how to separate it, because generally speaking, I was being hired to be slivers of myself or large chunks of myself. So when I'm getting a note, I feel like somebody is mining my soul or all of my insecurities to, to try to tell me something. When it's like, I'm speaking as an act, I'm speaking to my, you know, actor, and this is what we need from the character. This is what we need from the character to service the story. This is not a personal attack, but when, if you have not healed from things that your character is also struggling with, it, everything just feels personal, and every, you feel naked, and completely vulnerable, and humiliated. And um, having to separate that, learning how to separate the two, that you can do a character excavation without destroying your life. You, you mentioned, you know, at, at the outset of your career with this modeling work that sort of like, your, if your motivation was, was a, a pie, 100% of the motivation was being chosen and yes. that affirmation. And I imagine as you move through your career, this becomes 
a you know much more diversified pie which involves things like you know um, money and involves things like art and creative fulfillment and stories that you want to tell and all this and I guess as you think about your career what were sort of some of those early inflection moments where you had a conscious moment of like oh the thing that's making me want to do this is changing something the lord made with Yasin Bey he he pokes he likes to poke the bear you know and i like to poke the bear and so we would just be like but what about that is that going to do? And we would just kind of poke each other to challenge each other to step up and step up and step up and, and question more. And um, it was in the questioning amongst greatness that I was like, this feels fucking great. I feel like I did something here. And I love the feel of knowing I delivered in a scene and having these extremely talented, successful people be like that they're they're I to this day I don't I I don't have anything to compare that to and whether I lose money doing a job or I'm making millions that that you know because usually it's like the that feels that nothing feels as good um but before I was just motivated by you know I went from low self-esteem to money because money make can make you feel like I'm doing. I'm. I'm killing this. It's like no, you're making money. You're still not very good. You're bankable though, and mistaking being bankable for being talented, those are two separate things. And sometimes they can be in the same person. But in Hollywood, bankable stars may be good, might not be. And I didn't want to ever just be bankable. What was the transition from television to film like? And as an actor, is that a bigger challenge or bigger change than I think, you know, someone who does not do this might perceive? Um, nowadays, you go between TV and film all the time. And there is no knock on your career. You're not taking a step back. You're not, you know, humbling yourself by doing television. There's great television. There's just so much, you know, offering. There's so much, you know, that they, that they're, you know, they're offering nowadays between streamers and cable and all the things. You have so much more opportunity to tell so many different kinds of stories. Um, it's just not a, it's not really a thing. But back in the day, if you were a movie star, you're a movie star. And if you have to do TV, you've fallen off. It's, it's like a death blow. And, but for me, I've always gone where the work is. And I've never been too, you know, I've never thought I was, I was too good to work. But I've also always supported multiple households. So I never had the luxury of, you know, being uber choosy or selective. If the check clears and, I was open to it, it made sense. I'm taking it, because I have a lot of mouths to feed, and I don't have the luxury of, you know, being strategic. And I think it's funny, people are like, no, tell me about your strategy. I'm like, the strategy is did the check clear? <laughs> and that's, I wish there was more to it for me. Um, now, 
I don't want to take anything that doesn't scare the shit out of me. And, you know, our friend, Sanaa Lathan, was like, baby, if it doesn't scare you, it's not worth doing. And I used to think, well, that's cute for you. Sanaa, I don't want to be scared going to work. I want to be paid going to work. Um, but over the years, it's like she's respected in the world because she is selective, because she waits to be scared. And I wanted, I wanted more respect. And that, that took a lot more work on my craft and being a lot more selective. And I just want to tell great stories. And I don't care if it's two lines, I don't care if it's all the lines. It has to scare the shit out of me. And right now, I'm scared shitless. You know, when, when you started, you started in the um, cast and call nightmare scenario of sitting in a room with 75 people that look kind of like they might be you and moving through and auditioning and trying out for these roles. And I'm curious, at what point did you develop that first sense of sort of security and that or I've, I'm in the virtuous cycle place. Like, I, I, the work is coming and I just, as long as I keep knocking it out, there's gonna be more and there isn't this sort of sense of impending, um, you know, imposter syndrome or the, the, the rug is going, could, could still be pulled out. Uh, I struggle with that. Um, still. It's just, still, just because I, I think I just have more responsibilities, you know, for my money. So I get nervous, like, oh God, that, that movie didn't open, you know, well, what does that mean? Do I, am I, do I, do, am I gonna have enough to, to, to hold everybody up? And, and, and everyone's like, it's coming, like, calm down. And I'm trying to find peace in the journey, not using my anxiety and scarcity mindset to be my engine which is hard, you know? Um, that's hard, you know, when you, it's weird to say I'm head of household because in this household, we split everything 50-50. But in the other households that each of us have to support, it puts this, there's always this like gorilla on your back that it is like, you better work, bitch. You better work, you, bitch, you better work. You know, you, you gonna sleep in? Hmm, you know, somebody might not eat. Come on, come on, you gotta work. And it's hard. It's hard to let that go. And so I'm working on that. Tell me about what it was like working with DMX. That's <laughs> my guy. Um, I was a fan and he was just hella cool. Like, I'm a dog person. Um, and he had a lot of dogs on set that were a little unruly. And by unruly, I perhaps they were biting um, people. And we lost a lot of PAs, because you go get him for a set, and he had a dog, he had a pit named Sheila. And Sheila didn't, didn't like hard knocking, and because um, it sounded like the police. And uh, so Sheila took a bite out of, of a few people. Um, so that was fun. Uh, but after a while, they were like, can you go get him? 
like for anything. Can you go get him to go do like, you know, the, the BTS? And I'm like, why am I doing his B-roll? Like, isn't there a B-roll team? And they're like, he won't talk to anybody but you. And I'm like, well, he's also not gonna care about set design. Like, I'm not asking these questions. He's not going to care about any of this shit. And I'm like, I'm gonna ask him the questions that like, based on like, our experience. They're like, okay. So we're doing an action, you know, movie with Jet Li and, and I'm like, so who's your favorite Golden Girl? Because gold, he loved Golden Girls. I was gonna say, yes, tell me about your, <laughs> your shared love of an unlikely uh, 90s sitcom. Yeah, like, you know, so he'd be like, I'd have to go get him. If I wanted to, you know, go home at some point, they're like, you gotta go get X to bring him into work. But if you went into the trailer, he'd give you a Heineken and be like, you gonna drink? Come on, get I know you drink that cheap shit, but you gotta have this Heineken with me. And I'd be like, not to say I, that was my first time drinking on the set, but like, fuck it, I, I gotta, I gotta yes. you know, meet the man where he's at. So we'd be in there throwing back Heineken's and he put on Golden Girls. And the first time I was like, didn't see this coming. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I thought you'd be watching, but it was, it's not this. And he had like whole theories about Golden Girls. He had theories about all kinds of things that you would never, I don't know, think he would even be aware of, much less have deep feelings about. Um, Please tell me that he sang along to the theme song. I mean, that was a given, but like, <laughs> the other things he knew, like, like, I love random, like, deep cuts off of New Edition albums. Unless you're a huge New Edition fan, you wouldn't know these things. So I was singing S-C-H-O-O-L, you got to go, and he finishes it, and I was like, <laughs> tell me you are a new edition person. So like, again, like in the BTS, it was like, who's your favorite member of new edition and why? And he was like, no, that's easy. And um, now I don't remember what his answer was, but it wasn't like Ralph or, you know, one of the more obvious choices. It wasn't like, yeah. It might've been like Ricky and everyone's like, okay, slow clap. Okay, okay, tell me more. Um, but he was just very, very cool. And he treated me like a little sister. And if he was good, I was good. And he'd let me know he wasn't coming into work that day, but he wouldn't let anyone else know. <laughs> so, you know, um, th there was one point where uh, we're all, you know, we all had to come in at 6 a.m. and Jet, like if, if it says 7 a.m. Your, your call time, that's when you go to hair and makeup. Jet always, no matter what, he would be on his mark at 7 a.m. We're not even anywhere close. He's like, oh, I'm gonna be ready though. And we're like, yes, yes. Um, and Jet had this assistant named Beaver. I think you know where this is going. So there was this, there was this day where we're waiting. We've been all been waiting all day long. Poor Jet on his mark since 7 a.m. It's probably now like three. And I think since like 10 a.m., they were like, He's 20 minutes away. He's on his way. They had rented this huge mansion for him in Brentwood. And they're like, he's on his way. And we're filming like in Glendale. He's on his way. He's 10 minutes away, 20 minutes away. Okay, now it's four. Okay, they're like, is he coming? So me and Anthony Anderson, like I was on one side of a, of a double banger and Anthony was on the other side. And we're both watching TV. And I was like, Anthony, turn on MTV. And you know who's on MTV? Live on TRL. <laughs> DMX. And so we come out of our trailer, we're like, okay, not only is he not 10, 20 minutes away, he's in New York live on TRL. He's not coming. 
And he proceeded to not come to work for a, like, I felt like it was maybe a week plus. And they had sent the Warner Brothers jet to go get him in New York. And he left that Warner Brothers jet on the tarmac. I believe it was like a week. When he finally got back, he was like, you have a good vacation? And I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> um, and we were, we were filming at this army base and he was like, you want a dog? Let's get some dogs. And I was like, I'm, I'm sorry? Do I want a dog? Like, sir, you have been gone for a week. You're talking about dogs. He's like, let's get some dogs. Let's get some pups. Uh, it's 2 a.m. in Long Beach. I, my husband at the time knew a, a breeder of these, uh, they called them Royal Band Dogs. And he woke up this breeder in the middle of the night. Air, um, Joel Silver was like, whatever he wants, just bring it here. He had bought out this hobby shop. These dudes who did like the, the remote control uh, helicopters and cars and stuff. He bought out, he bought them out so they would always be on set so the ex didn't have an excuse to leave to go to the store. Um, so he was like, just bring the breeder, tell him to bring all the puppies. So this guy, and it's literally in the middle of the night, he probably gets down there about 4 a.m. And there's, he's got like a laundry basket full of these royal band dogs. And he was like, them are my two. That's Pebbles and that's Bam Bam. Pick one. And he, he bought me my dog, Bubba. Best, literally the best dog in the entire world. And um, so. A, a, pro I, a prominent character in your book. Yeah, I mean, he, like, I don't know, he was just sweet and funny and, I don't know, he, he cared deeply and he cared what people thought of him, even though it might not look like it from a career perspective. I mean, if you were a producer, you, it might not feel that way, but he really did care very deeply. Yeah, and I love that our daughter, or the little girl, in the movie, he like, not only did he treat her like a daughter on set, to, to his last days, he looked after Paige. And that, that tells me everything. That tells anybody anything you need to know about that man. I don't know, he had other struggles obviously, but his heart was so fucking pure. Just a good dude. At what point did you realize that Beyond being a working actor who is booking consistently, you are a brand. And how did you think about that? And how did it change your approach to your career? I think my first big endorsement opportunity was um, Neutrogena. And this is before people said things like, you're a brand or, you know, you have to think of your brand. I was so thrilled to be chosen. Cause you know, coming up, Garcelle was, you know, a, like the only, at that time, black spokesperson in Neutrogena's history at that point. Something like that. And I'm the next? After Fancy? Oh my gosh. Wow, yeah. And, Every year they kept renewing my contract and, and to, at, the, at that point, after so many years, I was the longest running spokesperson, I think at that time in like Johnson & Johnson history, um, who um, are over 
Neutrogena. And I just started taking it for granted, like, I am this. And then they were like, and that's enough for you. Um, meet Carrie Washington. And I was like, oh, whoa. And by then it was like, the talk was brands, brands, brands. So what does that mean if I've lost my brand? I don't, what, what happens now when you've been replaced? Do you have a brand? Am I, am I worthless? Because, you know, you, you feel like, oh, they, they made a move because I, I couldn't deliver. So what does this all mean? And what do I deserve? And what am I worthy of? And it was kind of like a, initially like a fake it till you make it, like, this is my brand. And I would say, like, just repeat what other people would say. And slowly, then I would add, you know, different pieces, different, um, initially it was just different checks. They didn't need to really be in alignment. My, my morals didn't have to not be compromised. And it's probably been in the last few years where I am very strategic brand-wise. I always wanna be true to who I am and where I come from and that my whole brand should be about centering the, the most marginalized of the marginalized and making whatever it is that I'm selling accessible and reasonable um, and reminding that everybody is worthy of the things that I have. I, I, I feel uncomfortable like thinking of my brand as aspirational. It's like, no, I want you to feel worthy of it today, not if I get enough money then. Um, and once I, I understood that innately, and then I started making decisions, kind of like centering that, I was like, oh shit. Now it feels good. I don't, the brand, it doesn't feel like an albatross. It's, it's something that is a, a great part of my life that allows me to reach more people and to constantly be reminding myself of why I'm doing this at all. Today's episode of the Idea Generation podcast is brought to you by Tres Generaciones Tequila. At its heart, Idea Generation is about the triumph of creative visionaries. But as anyone that's listened to the pod before knows, success always comes in the face of adversity. However, while the conditions creatives operate in may not be perfect, your tequila can be. Tres has a rich history dating back to its founding in 1973, which helps explain why the brand is a champion of those who persevere. The best value props are often the simplest, and Tres Generaciones is as straightforward as they come. Made from 100% blue agave, and water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, Trace is triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness. So whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage, let Tres be your running partner on this journey. Tres Generaciones, for those ready to fail twice and get up Tres. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person, and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Now back to the story. You mentioned before, you know, that actors, um, you know, certain actors uh, are bankable and mm -hmm. they can open a movie, right? Um, and I'm curious, you know, as someone who ascended from, you know, smaller parts to 
leading roles um, sort of in the years leading up to the advent of social media and then continuing to really have explosive growth in your career through the social media era. How did one navigate sort of the internal industry marketing of oneself to get roles in, in, er in that era before there were like algorithms and metrics and all these things, you know. And then also how has that changed since the advent of Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, et cetera, et cetera? I think even now, from then to now, from 95, late 95 to 2023, I've never been anybody's first choice. Not black folks, not white folks, but by hook or by crook, I, I get a job, right? And then that movie does really well. And what they tell you is if you're a part of a movie and your character, is, 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 uh, your character pops, then that leads to the next thing, right? And I'd be a part of a movie, let's take Bad Boys 2, for example. I'm the female lead. Movie is huge. Puts me on the map in a real way where there is name and face rec recognition. I, you know, oh, you're, no one's gonna know you guys in, in London. Oh, you could go anywhere. No one's gonna, you know, you can take the subway. But I really realized after Bad Boys 2 and Bring It On that how I am received by real life people is not reflected how I'm treated in Hollywood. They're completely different. And some people begrudgingly gave me opportunities and I kept excelling, no matter what. No matter how much I was paid, no matter how much they promoted it, for a very long time. So you're saying that there is more friction on ho in the Hollywood side than on the audience side? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was completely separate. But before social media, I had no way of really knowing that or quantifying that. So, because they tell you if, you, if you succeed, then these are the roles that open up. So I'm succeeding and the door is bolted shut. And the people who are jumping the line seem to be folks that make white people in charge very comfortable. And whether that be by the look, colorism is, colorism is a wonderful drug, um, or their politics or their disposition, whatever that is. And I was not, you know, you're gonna be in the running, but it was never, I was just never that girl for a lot, for, I mean, the bulk of my career. But I have been a motherfucking people's champ. Like real normal people who actually go to the movies um, outside of the Hollywood bubble, fuck with me, heavy. I didn't exactly know that, like, it was hard to tell. Then I started getting, you know, um, you know, being a lead in quote unquote black movies. And, but we're still opening number one beyond expectation, because of course the expectations were painfully low, but I'm, I'm number one on the call sheet and we're opening number one. Now, now they're gonna see. Well, it's 2023 and you know, what the fuck? Never even auditioned for Marvel, DC, tent poles. I was the female lead, one of the biggest hits of the 2000s. And they're like, huh? We are prepared to offer you sixth lead on a CBS procedure. It's like, huh. But what it did, like the social media era, me, Taraji, Nia, Sanaa, Tracy, it allowed 
our real world popularity to be quantified, to where it was undeniable. And the people that they kept choosing, nobody, there's, there's no crossover, right? They're not rooted in the black community. They have no ties to the black community. Um, then they were like, oh wait, have we been sitting, you know, sitting on these gems? Which is how they're like, did you guys know Regina King is like amazing? And they're like, what? You know, so it was kind of like the grand equalizer because we could quantify our popularity. Um, we could quantify the interest because I never looked at social media as, I was never strategic, I've, not then, not now, um, with social media. I just post what I feel like. Makeup, no makeup, hair done, not done. I don't, I don't really care. And people responded. And I've just tried to be myself in a way that people haven't really been able to see me in TV and film. And people started catching on. And now it's very slowly, doors are starting to open up. And it's weird to be 50 and people are sort of treating me like an ingenue after the inspection. And, uh, and I'm like, I, I, I've been doing this all along. But if you do it and you succeed, but you center blackness or it's a black movie, I guess those dollars don't add up the same for whatever reason. We know the reason, racism. Um, but, you know. Better late than never, I guess. You mentioned Bring It On, uh, a film that you did some years ago that has achieved a level of cult status that, you know, like it's damn near Rocky Horror Picture Show levels. I, ha I have to wonder when you were reading that script, when you were shooting that film, did you have any sense of even like, oh, this might, this is definitely gonna be a success, or much less, in 20 years, people are still gonna be dressing like this every Halloween? No, no. That Bring It On was a movie we all did, or some of us did, because we didn't get other movies. The movies we really thought were gonna propel us to the, you know, to the stratosphere. Um, the movie I thought was gonna do it for me, a different cheerleading movie, it was a cheerleading bank-robbing movie, uh, Sugar and Spice. I think they had like 12 leads. Didn't wanna go black on Nan One. And uh, the, the script for it, it was at the time called Cheer Fever, uh, came to me and it read like a, like a really bad spoof of a black exploitation film. And I was like, I, I can't do this. Like literally, I had to ask my ex-husband, like, can, do you know what this word even is? Because it doesn't seem to be adding up to a word. And he was like, well, say, but they, they want you to say, um, I'll say what it was. But they had spelled that out. So, I, you know, um, had some notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they had asked me to do the original uh, table read for Cheer Fever when they were still trying to get it made and, and uh, um, Ethan Embry was one of the other actors I remember, but uh, I think I was the only one from that original, or one of the only ones from that original table read that actually did the movie. And I remember Kirsten had really wanted Save the Last Dance and they're like, not this blonde. 
we're going with Julia. Um, so we were all like, I guess, summer in San Diego, you know, gonna have a good time. And we just had a fucking ball. We were like wild animals. Like <laughs> we could, we've never told the real full story and we never will, but <laughs> the bits that have come out, like, yes, I, I did use my per diem to pay off the federales to get some cast members out of jail in Tijuana. Did a lot of things in Tijuana. Very good times on Revolution. <laughs> um, but no, we just, we partied. We had, a, we had a blast. I had so much fun. Um, and then, you know, because usually the ones that are really fun, they're duds, like nobody watches. And that was one of the first ones that was so much fun that it matched, the reaction matched. But what was interesting is the Clovers were only in like a third of the movie. And when they started showing it to test audiences, the Clovers tested through the roof. And they're like, we need more with the Clovers, but it's, we can't add it to the movie. We're gonna shoot scenes, fake scenes, that will only be in the trailer. So we shot all these scenes that only live in the trailer that, to, to create the illusion that it was like a 50-50 movie. That's crazy. Yeah, but what's interesting is the people spoke. No, we want more of them. And it's always the people that are speaking the loudest. And Hollywood's like, what? No, no, no. My friend from Harvard said, this man is very funny. I know no one else is laughing, but it's, he's very funny. But it's like, it's like echo chambers. And the people, when the people spoke, they were like, okay, like we gotta deliver on, at least fake deliver. And uh, yeah, and the rest is kind of history. And it's wild to me, but culture appropriation never goes out of style. And you know, wanting people to get their just due, that urge, that desire, that goal, also never goes out of style. So I think it's just uh, what the movie represents and like badass young black girls who refuse to take shit and never back down. Like that, it, is a, it still appeals, you know, it appeals to me to this day. I, I remember seeing Patrick Stewart once on Conan and I think this was, he was promoting X2, the second mm -hmm. X-Men movie and so. And it's like, oh, I, I, I hear X2 is amazing. Like, people are really going on and on about it. And Patrick Stewart's like, oh, I hear that too. And he's like, oh. and he was like, oh, I've never watched, I don't, I've never watched any of my own films. I, I don't, I will never watch X2, but I'm glad people enjoy it. And at, as a consumer of films, had never occurred to me that that could possibly even be the case. And so I'm curious, do you, watch your own movies? At the premiere. Um, well, now it's like I'm, I produce a lot of what I make, yeah, I mean, so yes, I, I have to kind of watch as I'm going. We have to constantly be watching dailies. I have to watch the different cuts and, um, but no, after after the premiere, no, I don't, I've never circled back. Like, I've, I've gone to people's houses and like bring it on my beyond or some other movie, but I don't sit and watch it. Though, now that I say it out of my mouth, I remember that when I first started dating D, I, like, I made him watch some of my movies. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted to know what he thought. Like, I was very curious like, what his takeaways were. Um, so in that sense, I've watched some of them, but like, no. I don't, because I, I, then I start to pick apart my choices and I don't know, I, I start to kind of bastardize the experience and I make it about my insecurities rather than 
the beauty that I made. Also, well, to that point, I, I've always been curious because as an actor, you are the face of the film. However, you know, unless, until you have achieved perhaps like the level that you are today, where you are producing and overseeing, you know, for the, probably the first half of your career, you go in and you perform and you do your job, and then this litany of people who, some of whom you'll never meet, some of whom you maybe like or don't like, are going to put together this body of work that ultimately you are going to have to own in the public. What is that experience like? I'm just honest. You know, I didn't, I haven't hit it out of the park every, you know, every time out. And, you know, just because something made a lot of money doesn't mean I loved it. Okay. You know what I mean? Or it was good or whatever. So I'm just honest. Like when people are like, what did you think of such and such? And I'm like, it was trash. You know, like I, you know, there's, there's a movie that is a little bit more recent that I, we basically made for a sack of Doritos and, but people liked it and everyone's like, oh my God, I love it. Da, 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 da. And every time people are like on a plane, they're like, more people were watching, you know, this movie on the plane. I'm like, really? What, did they fall asleep? Like, the, uh, okay. But I'll tell people like, I didn't love that experience. Didn't, uh, okay, I'm glad you liked it. It, I, it doesn't hold the same, you know, I don't have the same feelings, but I try to just tell people the truth about my experience making those films and try to put things in perspective. Um, to share more about the whole process, you know? Because if you're just a fan, you're just watching the end. Like, that's really all you have access to. But for people who I actually come across, like, no, I'm gonna tell you what it was actually really like and what went into the art that you appreciate or what was sacrificed to make the art that you appreciate, good or bad. What was the transition like and how did it reframe your thinking to go from being an actor part of the proletariat, to then being a producer and becoming part of management. And how did that change how you thought about the process and also how you thought about perhaps some of your own grievance or you know, issues that you've had on the other side of things? Being able to control the means and experience of a production, I don't like doing any job without having that power. Truth Be Told season three was uh, a demonstration of trust in my good friend Octavia Spencer, that she runs her ship like I run my ship. If I have to be at someone's mercy for how they respect my time or anybody else's time, no thank you. So from jump, I was like, we're not wasting anybody's time. We're all going to be efficient. You can make art efficiently. You can make art respectfully. Um, it turns out it's actually not hard to get through a workday without whipping out your dick and jacking off. There's other ways of, you know, existing and creating art and you don't have to be exploitive, you don't have to be abusive, you don't have to dog people out. Like, it, it, you can actually have a, a good experience and for people who are parents, they can see their kids. Like, you can prioritize all these things. You can work with a nursing mother, which in Hollywood was like, what? Like they were like, you want you want to hire Jessica Alba for LA's Finest? She's nursing. And I was like, yeah, women multitask. She'll be fine. Um, and her boobs will be even bigger. And they're like, you're onto something. Um, 
but we came in under budget and ahead of schedule. You know what I mean? So every job I'm trying to dispel myths that you can be respectful, you can speak to people in a normal tone, you can respect people's money, you can respect people's time, um, and still make beautiful, impactful art. Um, but part of that is also fighting for people to, to be respected financially. You know, like we have a production company. The, the battles I love are with business affairs. You know, I'm gonna fight for my creatives to get paid. And at the end of the day, if it takes me cutting my fee to pay somebody else, I'll do it every time. Um, yeah, I just, I don't know. Then those are things that I learned from, Is you know, Issa. Like, no, you can go to battle with BA. Because it's, it's so much harder for them to tell uh, the black woman that they have put in charge why another black woman deserves less. You know, um, and I was like, I can? And I'm like, what I think she should be, you know, and they're like, okay. I'm like, okay, if that's all it took? Like, <laughs> oh shit, okay, so now I'm in everything. I'm in the trenches every time. I'm gonna swing for the fences. Like, shit, at least I'll get on base, you know, get people paid, get people respected, make sure my writers are, are rising through the ranks. I can do this. Um, but I learned that from this experience on uh, Deliverance from Evo with LL. You know, both of us have little egos, and we were arguing. LL has an ego? What? Um, uh, good old Todd. Uh, but yeah, so we were having like a, some kind of debate back and forth, right? And they kept calling for us to come to set. And I wanted to make my point. And I wanted him to concede, you know, like, no, okay, you're right, you're right. And we, so we keep going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. They keep coming, they're like, you, you, know, you guys, we, we gotta go, we're, you know, we're, we're getting a late start. And, and I'm number one on the call sheet. I'm like, no, and I had, you know, taken the time to, to, to make sure that our music supervisor was like playing music between sets. I thought I was doing it. But when they called me to come to set, I didn't come. And eventually go to set, day goes on. And towards the end of the day, we still had, you know, more work to do. And I overhear a crew guy say, well, now I'm not gonna make it home for my daughter's game. And I went back to that stupid debate about something that doesn't matter, that I thought was more important than respecting everybody's time on set. And now this man is gonna miss his child's game. And as, you know, a daughter of a man who never missed anything, who always prioritized us, I put that man in a position to not be able to prioritize his kid. And I was like, never again. This will never happen to me, ever again. And so I don't tolerate it on my set. So. You know, we, we, can, we can have a great time, we can laugh and joke and kiki. I need you to be off book. I need you to be prepared. I need you to be respectful. I need, I need you to act like you didn't grow up in a fucking barn. And none of this is hard, not any of it. And people respect it, I get results. And they're like, eh. she knows what she's doing, you know? And it feels great. And I definitely prefer doing my own project. <laughs> In the last decade, Hollywood has been roiled amid political controversy and scandal. Um, what? Just in the last decade? I mean, more pointedly, perhaps, um, with obviously first the Oscar So White, mm. and then Me Too. And we are now five, six, seven years out on both of these sort of inflection moments. There has been 
from the outside looking in, some change. I'm curious from your vantage, how much have those movements actually inspired systemic changes within the system and how much of it is pageantry and performance? It's probably about 50-50. So structural change that came out of Me Too, for example, uh, intimacy coordinators. Uh, to say in the wild, wild west of Hollywood, about three years ago, you know, um, relatively recently, there was no, there weren't, there wasn't generally speaking a lot of discussion um, nor consent asked of as you're doing sex scenes and no matter what was in your contract. Uh, so you could, you could negotiate top of ass, side boob, no nipple, no crack. Like you could, you know, negotiate that. And then you get on set and nobody gives a shit and you're just out there. And then you're like, if I say something, will I lose my job or am I now difficult? Am I? So one of the, the biggest things I think that is nobody like fucks around with it. Like you respect it, the intimacy coordinators and they are very welcomed and they take you beat by beat through each part of the scene um, when, there are, when there are sex scenes. So that's something that I can say is like structural. Um, all those things that were supposed to be structural, like 20% you know, women by 20, whatever it was. I'm still waiting. Uh, a lot of it was just, you know, black squares on Juneteenth. And that was enough. That's enough. Um, what do they want from us? I'm just a, a poor nine-figure millionaire just, I'm just scraping by. It's like it's hard to be a, a working white screenwriter. What's, what's, what's next? Equity? You know. <laughs> um, so it's almost been, there's like the, pendul the, the pendulum swung in the opposite direction where there was this pretty quick blowback to the minuscule changes that were made. And kind of like the, the, the response to the Obama presidency is the, the outwardly, openly racist, like just insane white supremacist, like the insurrection, like all of that, just let the flag fly as a reaction. And in Hollywood, it's, you know, similar. Uh, you take something like an awards campaign where, you know, black talent is told that you, you have to do all of these things. You have to pay all of this money. You have to show up at these events. And so you have to pay all of, you know, oodles and noodles to stylists and tailors. And, and well, now you gotta have transportation. Well, you know, you did, a, you did an Indian, so they, they can't really fly you. But you know, you're a big star, you can fly yourself. And, and then it adds up and it adds up and it adds up. But what if you don't have it? But your performance, the performance is done. Aren't they just supposed to watch it, and if they like it, they vote for you? Isn't that what it is? What are, what are you actually campaigning for? If you can campaign, is it really about the, the performance? Or is it about something else? Like, what am, I, what am I campaigning for people to do exactly? And it was like, well, you know, you gotta get people to watch the movie. And I was like, well, isn't that what press is for? You know, like, this is this, you know, my performance is a part of this movie. And, 
And they're like, yeah, but you got to get people, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's you know, got to cut, you know, help them cut through the clutter and, and then feel good about voting for you. Feel good about voting for me? What does that mean? Oh, right. The, the majority still of voters are older white gentlemen. And even if they love your performance, you have to get to that place of in the privacy of their own home and they don't have to tell anybody what they actually did, are they comfortable voting for you? And that for some can be a Herculean task that requires a campaign. And I was like, I understand what Monique was talking about now. That actually makes perfect sense. And to say that uh, award season is equitable or fair or um, not a game would be to lie. Uh, and there, there is something that I was sort of tickled about by, um, I don't know this lady's name, Aunt Andrea, the, the, the woman from To Leslie, where they figured out how to game the system for free. Just by tapping into their friends who happen to be Academy voters. And, you know, you see that you watch the performance, she deserves it. But it was like, she didn't have to spend all that money. <laughs> you know, and, but black talent, like, there's not enough black folks or your peers, you know, just working with white people isn't enough for them to cape for you the way that they cape for her. Like, that avenue isn't really available to everybody, right? So there's, there's plenty of things that we can work on and, and examine and, and uh, figure out how can you make it more equitable. And when they were like, we're gonna launch an investigation. And I'm like, did you launch an investigation into Harvey Weinstein? And like, you know, those, you know, infamous campaigns, even the word campaign, the movie's done. Either you watch it, you like it, or you didn't. What are, what are, we, what are we doing? So, I don't know, I, I, th I think there's so much about Hollywood that is bullshit. And you can either sign up for it and like swim in it and you can have a, an amazing life swimming in the bullshit, you know, dousing yourself in the fecal matter and then you wonder why you can't sleep at night because you're shitty. I choose to center my peace and my, my self-worth now, and I'm gonna create things and do things my way. And I'm so okay with however, whatever that destination ends up being. I'm having the time of my fucking life on the journey. You have created uh, Flawless. You have launched recently proudly with Dwayne. Um, Bitsies. Yeah, so tell me about how you think about the off-screen development of your brand and your, you know, this life as an entrepreneur that you have running concurrently with your sort of core pursuit. My entrepreneurship has to be in alignment with my soul. So me creating business is really about creating more opportunity. It, it cannot be about my bottom line. So when people come to me and 
the, the, the crux of, of what they're trying to sell me on is all fiscal. I'm like, I don't care about that. What I care about is, like take Bitsy's for example, we have to figure out how to lower the price, create a flavor profile for the communities that desperately need these products. We need to put them in stores that are actually in marginalized communities. And if I have to take less or sacrifice my share, I'm okay with that. And they're like, why? I'm like, because I need to sleep at night and that's not, my engine isn't, how do I line my pockets off of the needs of my own community? So it's like finding partners that have, you know, are in alignment with that, that money comes. If your intention is pure and you are constantly reaffirming the centering of the needs of the most marginalized in everything that you do and every brand that I have, even when I lose, I win. And with every loss, I figure out what's what's the lesson. Okay, how do I do this better? How how can I how can I how can I how can I pivot? How can I how can I figure out not only how to turn that loss into a win, but into like revolutionize this industry? How do we do it? And they're like, I don't know, but let's fucking figure it out. And even though we might not be making the same kind of profits as other companies, I don't like those people. I don't like what they stand for. When they walk in a room, I want to walk out. I don't want that ever to be me. So, all right, let's, let's go back to the drawing board and see how we can make sure we can sleep at night. And I just do that over and over and over and over again. I don't ever want to develop anything that my cousins can't have. That makes me an asshole. I don't want to be an asshole. And that's pretty much my motto. Like, fuck, am I a bad person if I, if I wanted? No, you're a fucking asshole. That's not it. Okay, what else you got? And it's just constantly asking yourself, am I doing this out of fear? Am I doing this out of ego? Am I doing this out of pride? Am I doing this to make a dollar off of my own people? Let's go back to the drawing board. But that, I mean, that, if I wasn't in therapy twice a week, two, two hours a pop, I don't know if I could be as comfortable with that. And I've, I'm just more relatively recently being comfortable with that. And I think it was during the pandemic when I'm completely cut off from being in those meetings where it's a hard sell to, how can we exploit Gabrielle so that she can then exploit her own community? And none of them win. And I learned that lesson from the first time I launched Flawless with the wrong partners. It was offensive and we were very successful. And I was like, I don't wanna succeed that way. So we relaunched, nothing's over $10. I want, I wanna be in stores that are actually in the community that aren't gonna follow around my customers if they screw off a, a, a lid and, and, and feel the, the, the consistency of a conditioner. I don't want people to break the bank because they want to twist out. I think you're an actually an asshole to do that. So don't be an asshole. As a member of 
the entertainment media from the mid-90s, when your career started, and who has observed your career from afar for, you know, quite some time, and obviously with the unique perspective of doing it as a family friend in the last seven or eight years, it appears you have achieved something that I think almost all professionals would aspire towards, which is that your career has gone up and to the right year over year. Every year is your biggest and your best year. What is the key to making that happen? Therapy. Beginning, at least beginning the work of healing childhood trauma. Acknowledging and addressing how my PTSD shows up in all areas of my life. And also like embracing vision boarding, which I thought was fucking corny. Uh, years ago, uh, when the big three came together for the Miami Heat, and it was the second uh, year that they had gone to the finals and Savannah James, LeBron James's wife, she organized this vision board thing. And I think the purpose was we were supposed to vision board for them so like we could get a championship. Uh, but very quickly we were like, fuck them. Um, it, was very, it was very much fuck them kids. And it was all like about what we wanted. And, you know, looking through magazines and finding things that you, you thought that you, you wanted to aspire to have or to be or whatever. And that first year, I remember putting a ring on my vision board, like a wedding ring. And then I got the wedding ring. And I still didn't feel fulfilled or seen or worthy or deserving. But it was a big ass ring. And I was like, well, what more am I supposed to want? Because this is, this is supposed to be what you're supposed to shoot for. And it took me many more years of putting stuff on my damn vision board before I realized I don't need stuff. Stuff is not, it doesn't fill my soul. It doesn't make my soul sing. I want experiences. I want, I want a dream. But how do you put a dream on a vision board? I don't even know what that looks like. So I would lean into more words, phrases, um, pictures that kind of captured how I want to feel, you know? So like, um, well this year we were doing our vision boards pretty close to each other. Uh, and I had cut out um, like uh, lavender. And it was like, and I remember looking and I was like, I don't want to plant more lavender. I, it's just the feeling I, I get with the fucking lavender. But I, I just started creating vision boards that, I don't know, I, I, as I looked at, I was like, yeah, what does that mean? We just did our vision boards, what, what do you do, on the 1st yes. of January. There are things I put on my vision board that within that week of us coming home came to pass. And I was like, damn it, I didn't shoot high enough. It's already, it's already happening. You know, um, yeah. I, I, I couldn't figure out why I had cut out the pyramids of, of Egypt. I've, I've been but I put it on there. Of course, we'll be going to Cairo soon, you know, for one of our loved ones, as watching them thrive. And I was like, subconsciously, I was including us all in my dreams. And I didn't even realize it. And I was like, that really does go to my subconscious and my soul 
is that I feel like I'm thriving. I feel like my best self when I am covering everybody, when I'm including everybody on this ride, including everyone in my dreams. So by the time I got home and I did the, I've been also writing this blank check to myself, uh, made out to the law of abundance, um, and I don't put an amount. And on the subject line, I write what I want. If for whatever opportunity that brings me money, what I want it to also bring. Peace, joy, grace, love, light, compassion, benevolence. Because I also realized the more I make, the more I can give. The more I, I give, the more I fucking keep receiving. And then the cycle repeats itself. Okay, uh, what else can I add, you know? Um, and I put it in my wallet next to my money. And I, no cap, every year that since I started writing the check, I've made more than I've, I've ever made in my life. And last year, I made more by March than I had made in the previous year. So, I don't know, I think there is power in claiming victory and then acting as if. Like it's coming. I know it's coming. I also put my soft, I think it's like my soft girl era is calling, which I don't even know what that means as somebody who is worked like a free range chicken since I was 19. But I'm interested to know what that means. You know, we send each other, you know, these homes in other countries and I don't know, maybe I need to be in a rocking chair and I don't know, in Rwanda, just at peace. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know, but I'm open, figuring it out. I, I will say as someone that, uh had never vision boarded before January 1st of this year and also went into it with some skepticism. I saw it. it oh, it, no, I saw it. it you and you and D-Money both? I was like, I <laughs> have already realized most of the things on the list, and it is absolutely, there is something to it. Um, and we are now way over time, so I'm not going to take any more of your time. Thank you. This was fucking phenomenal, and I really, really appreciate Oh, this is awesome. giving us use of your home and your time and all of this. No, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here with NOAA 2.0. And you can explain to them what that means. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Idea Generation Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and show your support by leaving us a rating, or better yet, a review, on your podcast platform of preference. It only takes a few seconds of your time, but it can make a world of difference in helping others to discover the show. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, I'm Noah callahan Bever. This podcast is brought to you by the good people over at Shopify. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. And thanks to our partners at Tres Generaciones Tequila for making today's episode possible.